So Ruth chapter 3. Uh, for those of you that haven't been here, we've been uh, endeavoring through the book of Ruth. And we've been learning about the book of Ruth, but you know, more it, it, it's about a narrative. Uh, it, it, it's, an, it's a narrative of a young woman's life and her mother-in-law and a man by the name of Boaz. And it's a love story, but as we have been saying, it, it is a greater love story really uh, with uh, Jesus and his bride or Jesus and his people, right? The way that uh, Christ romances us, right? And we just, you know, Mark, Pastor Mark, he has been reiterating over and over and over again that the entire Bible is about Christ. Old Testament pointing forward to the cross, New Testament either explaining the cross or pointing back towards the cross, right? And so every single story, no matter, give give me any book, right, even Numbers and Leviticus, um, I can prove to you that it is all about Christ, it is all about Christ. And, and you know what? That is something that is uniquely taught in churches. It's not, uh, it, it's not often you go to church and you hear, oh, the entire Bible is about Jesus. They know this to be true, but we want this to be on the forefront of your minds. That the entirety of Scripture speaks towards the gospel. It is not just God was mean, he got some counseling, sent Jesus to be nicer, right? That's not how it went. That's not how, uh, th- that's not how the Bible is written. It is one long narrative. And before we dive into Ruth chapter 3, I want to remind you uh, of two things. I want to remind you of two important things that help me when reading scripture. They help me when reading the Bible. Um, first of all, First of all, I, I want us to understand something, that the Bible is historical in a sense that it is told by real people and, depending on the book, about real events, right? So the Bible is, in fact, historical in a sense that, yes, it does tell us stories of history and is written by real people. However, although it is historical, we cannot read it like a history textbook, Okay? You need to understand that though scripture is absolutely historical and most books, some books are poetry, right? And, but most books are historically accurate, histor- actually happened. We cannot, we must not read it merely as a historical textbook, right? As you would in a college course or as you would in high school, as you would, you know, any type of textbook. You can't read the Bible like that. The Bible is literary, right? It is literally true, but it is also literarily written, right? It is written as a novel. It is written as a book. It is written to tell a story, a long continuous story of the gospel. This means that there are metaphors, there's symbolism, there's mnemonic devices, there's repetition that is invoked. So all of these things, guys, are invoked to tell us a story And not only just to tell the story, because that's what history textbooks do, right? They tell us the straight facts, right? Here's the facts. Here's exactly what happened, right? But what the Bible does, it doesn't just give us historical events, but it, 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 it authors in symbolism, metaphors, all of these things in order to give us not only the stories themselves, but the meaning behind the stories, right? The actual meaning behind the stories. If it were a straight history textbook, we would lose all the hidden meaning and value behind the actual events. Does that make sense? So, so I want you guys to understand this, that as we, as we interpret the Bible as one continuous story about Jesus, we must interpret it as we would a story that is written by an actual person. 
right? Not necessarily, all right, fact, this is what happened. Fact, this is what happened. The Bible is literally true, but it is literarily written. And that is the way it tells the story of God. Not just to spit out facts for you to remember, right? But to tell a story, to invoke emotion, to get you to identify with it. To get you to dive into the story. That's why context is important, right? That's why we don't just read the scripture and expect you to know everything. That's why we give you context, historical context, right? It is a story that was written in a real time. And in order to interpret it, you need to know certain symbolism, right? Um, The second thing I want you guys to understand before we dive into chapter three, um, the entire Bible, uh, like like I've just been saying, I, I know I sound like a broken record, but this needs to be conveyed, is that the Bible tells the broader story of Christ, and we must look at the book of Ruth and see, and we, if we take it as a way to get dating advice, you're going to end up creepy, right? Because what you guys are going to find in this chapter specifically is that Ruth does some really odd things to get Boaz to marry her, right? Spoiler, like that's, that's the ending, right? Her and Boaz get married. Ruth and Boaz get married. And Ruth does a lot of weird things to get that to happen. What we need to understand is that there is symbolism in this. There is actual history historical context and you should not take something like this literally like single ladies if you like a guy you shouldn't hover over his bed and like look at his feet right like that's that's something that Ruth actually does right and we're going to learn that tonight and so we we have to make sure that we see this guys we see this as pointing towards a broader story of Christ's redemption right and we need to look at many books in scripture about that right we need to look at many, many portions of scripture and, and, and sometimes say, well, I'm not supposed to do this exactly. It's telling a greater story of the gospel, right? And in the story of the gospel is where I learn more. Does that make sense? So, and on another note, guys, um, I'm going to be reading out of the ESV tonight. And I will tell you why when we get to that. I'll tell you why I'm reading from the ESV when we get to that. So some of you might have New King James Version. Some of you might have NIV. I'm going to be reading for ESV and I will explain it. It's actually pretty funny, right? Um, it's, it's actually a big difference. So I will read uh, Ruth chapter three, verses one through five. We'll start out with. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. This is God's word. It's kind of weird, but we're going to pray. Lord, we love you. And uh, God, I'm really excited about this text because it's so rich with the story of your redemption. Um, and And it's deeply embedded in the story, Lord. And so I just pray that you would help us extract that tonight. Um, that, that our, our, our minds would be able to uh, almost chisel away, Lord, at some weird details that we think might be a little creepy on Ruth's side or weird on Naomi's side or kind of odd on Boaz's side, Lord, that we'd be able to chisel away at the context to see the greater uh, imagery of your cross and your love towards us, Jesus. And so we, we pray that you would um, make this come alive to us 
uh, tonight, Jesus. Uh, we love you, and we pray that you guide us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. Not a lot of you here. I gotta, like, we gotta, we gotta be together, all right? So, guys, um, I'm getting married this week, right, to the lovely Megan Freeze. That's something that's happening this week. Yes. It ties in, I promise. I'm not just looking for your applause. Um, uh, she and I had met uh, a few years ago, even though she doesn't remember us meeting. But like we had met a few, uh, we had met a few years ago. We were both dating people at the time, so we really didn't notice. But uh, we were introduced just on a passerby because I used to do a lot of work at Pepperdine. I used to lead the college ministry for Calvary Chapel Malibu. And so a few years ago, I met Megan, um, who's soon to be my bride this Friday. And um, you know, we we just passed by, and it was a super super just you know, brief meeting. It was very, very brief. And then uh, a few years later, uh, for before, right before Chris and Amanda's wedding, uh, I met Megan again. And it, once again, it was just a very brief uh, passerby moment. It, it, it was very short. It was very uh, surface level. There was nothing super special in our interaction. It wasn't like both of our eyes lit up and like, oh, the one, right? That's not, um, that's not necessarily how it happened. Um, we were introduced years later. Later and, uh, and and later on, we, you know, she would be invited to my house um, because we were hanging out. Uh, I was hanging out with a mutual friend, Wilson, the one who introduced us. And 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 she would come over to my house, and it was a very short interaction. She was there for a little while with Wilson. You know, we just talked about life and got to know her a little better. But but there was no. It was it wasn't like sparks were flying everywhere, and you know, it wasn't like. You know, I asked her out that night and stuff. You know, we, we, we got to like see each other and like sit in the same room for more than uh, like 20 minutes, right? And, um, and, and so after that, you know, we became intrigued. Um, and what would happen was that she would cleverly ask uh, Wilson, our friend, to invite um, me to events that had nothing to do with my friend group or whatever. But uh, like she would like, oh, you can bring Zach along too. And like I would come along like a dope, you know, and it's like, hey, guys. And, 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 and so, and so we, we both started to capture each other's attention, right? And in... After this, and at that point, I had finally caught on, and you know we were interested in one another. And she's really embarrassed right now that I'm telling you this story. And um, and 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 at that point, I I, I decided, all right, I got to capitalize on this, right? Uh, she's a beautiful woman, and she like she can stand me for more than 20, 25 minutes, right? That's a good sign. I'm probably not going to find many others like that, right? And so, and so I decided to capitalize on this and um, we started hanging out more individually, right? And after that, after we started hanging out for a few months, um, just as friends, you know, getting to know each other, um, I finally asked her out on an actual date, right? And now we're getting married. And, and what began, guys, what began as some random happenings, some random happenings turned out and, and turned into an intentional pursuit of one another, right? What started out as this random passerby meetings uh, turned into an intentional pursuit. And that is what is happening in the book of Ruth. 
That is what's happening in the book of Ruth. All these uh, happenings, all these random acts are turning into a, 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 an intentional pursuit. What is happening with Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz started out as Naomi and Ruth, they had to uh, come back to Bethlehem. They had to come back to the city of Naomi, right? And Ruth needed work. So she's like, I'll just go work in the fields and just try and get whatever kind of job I can. And Ruth randomly went out into a field that happened to be Boaz's field. And we learn later, and that's what the Bible says. The Bible says it just so happened that it was Boaz's field. It just so happened that it was the kinsman redeemer of uh, Naomi's family. Now, kinsman redeemer, guys, is a very interesting term. And I, I, I want you guys to write it down if you are taking notes. The, the term kinsman redeemer. Um, the word is uh, goel. I probably pronounced that wrong, but the word is spelt goel, right? Um, in America, we say goel. I don't care how they say it anywhere else, right? It's spelt goel. Um, and that role was established by God. And that had several responsibilities. So there was families, and then in those families, there was clans. And in those clans, there was tribes, right? Like the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Nephtali, right? Um, there's a bunch of different tribes. And in those tribes, smaller, but a little larger than families, was a collection of families called clans, right? And it was a collection of kinsmen. It was a collection of cousins, second cousins, uh, not even really relatives, but they're all part of the, the same family, right? And it just so happened that Boaz was the kinsman redeemer of Naomi's clan. The kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer was an official title given to some men in the clan. And they were single men. And the kinsman redeemer's jobs, there were several of them, their jobs were to back fellow Israelites, uh, to buy back Israelites from slavery, right? So if there was any of their clan got accidentally sold into slavery, the kinsman redeemer would buy them back from slavery, right? That, that, was, that was a role of the kinsman redeemer. The other one was that they were an avenger of blood to make sure the murderer of a family member answered to their crime, right? So, so, so they were the justice, like they were kind of the knights of the clan, right? They, they would go in, they had their own little armies or their servants and be like, this person committed a crime and they're going to pay for their crime right? They would avenge blood. And he was also responsible to buy back family land that had been um, forfeited, right? So, so if someone was in debt um, with any land or property, the kinsman redeemer, their job was to buy back that land, all right? Are we kind of getting what the kinsman redeemer is kind of like, right? We kind of getting an idea. Their last role, their last and final role, was they were responsible to carry on the family name by marrying childless widows. That was their last and final job. If there was a childless widow in the clan, one of the kinsmen redeemers would take her as his wife and have children in the name of whatever, whatever man had died. And so who is the childless widow at this point? It is not Ruth, actually, because Ruth is an outsider. Okay? Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth is an outsider at this point. So the insider on this is Naomi, right? Naomi is the childless widow at this point, right? Because her sons have died. Her husband's died. Naomi is the childless widow. Now the kinsman redeemer, his job would be to marry Naomi, right? So Boaz's job would be to marry Naomi, but Naomi is too old to bear children, right? She said this herself. She's like, I'm, I'm far too old to bear children. So, so Boaz is not bound to Naomi at all. And he is especially not bound to Ruth. 
okay? He's especially not obligated to marry Ruth at all, okay? That is not his job. And when Naomi discovers that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, right? And that the, the, the field that Ruth just so happened to walk into to try and get food and that Boaz just so happened to extend to Ruth kindness and say, hey, take an extra portion of barley for you and your mother. So, so, so since Boaz just happened to be there and he happened to be a really nice guy, what started as some random happenings for Naomi turned into an intentional pursuit. Does that make sense? Kind of what I was describing with Megan and I. What started as just random happenings here and there began an intentional pursuit towards a goal, right? In the midst of destruction, when there's a glimmer of hope, when there's a glimmer of hope, God's people capitalize, right? So Naomi has a game plan, right? Naomi has a game plan, and that's what we see right here. It says, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose uh, young women you were? See, he is a winnowing barley tonight on the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak, right? So he's like, clean up, girl, right? Naomi is like, we're going to get your nails did, right? We're going to make sure that you are all nice and froofed up, and you're going to go to Boaz, and you're just going to, like, present yourself, right? That's, that's kind of what it seems to me. Right? It, it, it kind of seems like to me that there's this, and, and I'm not going to hide this from you, like there seems like it, in, in, in what Ruth is about to do, it almost seems sexual, right? Hey, wait for him to be fed and happy and have just a couple drinks in him after a long day of work and just have him, when, right when he begins to lay down and fall asleep, I just want you to be all nice and pretty, right? Smell nice and just present yourself at the foot of his bed. And she says this right here. She says, then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do, right? She's, she's kind of just leaving this open-ended thing and, and Boaz will do with you what he may, right? That's kind of what it seems like right here, right? That's, that's kind of the connotation I'm getting a little bit. It almost seems sexual, right? It almost seems like Naomi is asking Ruth to go dress herself up and seduce Boaz like a weirdo, right? Uh, that's kind of what seems like what's happening right here. Now, it may look that way. It may look that way. But when we look deeper, as I said, into context, and when we look deeper into culture, we see something a little different, right? Because to us, ladies, if you did that, that's weird, right? If, If you all of a sudden, like, you got all dressed up, like, you know, you have this nice mechanic friend that, you know, you want to get hooked up with. And, you know, he's just like, he's, he's doing his thing. And he's like, do you know what? I'm just going to take a break. I'm going to have a snack and I'm just going to go over here. I'm going to lie on a cot and just kind of like lay down for a bit. And you're just standing over his bed like this, right? That, that'd be creepy, right? That'd be, that'd be weird. Like you're intended, right? Ladies or gentlemen, if you want, if you like somebody and you're like, Hey, I want to marry this person. You go into their room and just kind of lie there at the foot of their bed and just like, you know, like, you know, just what, like, un, like lift up the covers just enough so their feet are exposed. And so the breeze will come in and their feet will be cold and they'll wake up and they'll find you there, right? Like, hey, I'm here, right? So, so, so like I said, this isn't necessarily dating advice, right? This isn't necessarily dating advice. And I want you to take a look at the language that Naomi uses in verse three. I want everyone to look at verse three. Wash therefore and anoint yourself 
and put on your cloak. For some of you might say, wash your face, therefore, anoint yourself with oil and put on your cloak or put your clothes on. Put your nice clothes on. So Ruth had been working uh, all day, right? And, and, and Naomi's like, hey, look, you know, you need, to, you need to wash your face, wash yourself up, anoint yourself with perfume, right? And put on a new outfit, right? And so to us in our Western culture, this seems like, uh, all right, you know, dress up, look nice, show him your stuff, right? And, you know, maybe he'll be pleased with it, right? And, and so that's what it seems like to us. But if you turn a little bit into 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, you don't have to go there. I could read it for you. If you're a fast turner, you can turn there. But it's 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's another time this phrase is used. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, after King David had lost his firstborn son, so King David lost his firstborn son. He, he and Bathsheba got pregnant, right? That's when he killed Uriah, all this stuff. We went through God and kings. For those of you that weren't there, it's online. All the whole life of David, right? So David had sinned. David had done something really bad. And, and as a result, right, of his sin, um, his firstborn son, right out from childbirth, uh, died. His firstborn son died. And what David did, he locked himself in a room. He wouldn't take food. He, would, he was just on the floor weeping before God. Right? So that, that's the context of this. David, King David, right, who is a descendant of Ruth and Boaz, actually. King David just sat there on the floor, crying out before the Lord. He was in a time of mourning. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, it says this. After David was done mourning, it says, Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. The same thing Naomi is saying right here, right? Naomi says, Hey, listen, wash anoint yourself, change your clothes. When David is done mourning the death of his son, he washes, right? He, he anoints himself and he changes his clothes. The practice of washing yourself up, anointing yourself and putting on a new set of clothes symbolized the end of a period of mourning. This act, in order, symbolized this, this almost like God renewing me. He has, he has washed me clean, right? He has washed me clean. He has anointed me. He has, given me uh, he has given me power again. He has given me vitality again. And then new clothes, meaning clothes of righteousness. He has forgiven me. He has redeemed me, right? So there's this imagery here in washing yourself and anointing yourself and in putting on new clothes. It is symbolism, symbolism, right? This is literary, literary. It is symbolism for an end of a period of mourning. When Naomi and Ruth first got to the city of Bethlehem, and they're like, oh, Naomi's back. She's like, don't call me Naomi anymore. That's not me. I'm, I'm mourning now, right? I'm mourning. Right? God has dealt bad with me. And so now Naomi, with this glimmer of hope that Boaz might be able to be their redeemer, might be able to bring them back, might be able to marry Ruth and give her children and give her a future. The second there's this glimmer of hope, the period of mourning is over for them. The period of mourning is over. Naomi and Ruth had spent such a long time mourning the loss of their husbands, right? Think about that, guys. They're, Naomi's husband died and Ruth's husband died, right? Let's not belittle this at all. They were in a period of intense mourning, but now there's hope. Because we've learned before, you know, for a childless widow, you are the lowest of the lows. You're below a slave, 
And so now that Boaz might, it, it might be that they could lay hold of him as a redeemer. She's like, the period of mourning is over. Let's do this. Wash yourself, anoint yourself, and put on new clothes and go sit at the feet of your potential redeemer. Right? And so that's when we see this in Ruth chapter 3, verse 6. So let's continue on in verse 6. Hope you didn't put your Bible away. It's a Bible study. Ruth chapter 3, verse 6, it says, So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Right? So imagine this. Imagine this. It's just like, you know how when your feet are really chilly, it's like in the middle of the winter, like your feet are chilly and you're like, ah, you, you can't sleep if your feet are too hot or too cold. Have you noticed that? Right? Like some of you, like your, your, your feet are just boiling hot, right? And you just can't handle it, right? You can't get to sleep. And some of you guys, like your feet are just so freezing, you can't even, like, you can't even think about sleep, right? Until you get your socks on, right? And so, so what Ruth does is she uncovers his feet, right? Let's the breeze do its thing. And he gracefully wakes up, you know, like there's a woman right here, right? And so he says this, he says, who are you, right? So it's dark, can't even see that it's plain, you know, it's Ruth right? And she answered, listen to this. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Here's the reason I use the ESV, guys, because for some of you that are looking at the New King James Version right now, you see, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your skirt over your servant, for you are my kinsman, right? That sounds way weirder to me, and I just can't do that, all right? Like, I just, you know, spread your skirt over me, for I am your kinsman, right? So, for you are my kinsman. So, it's like, there's, there's symbolism here. He says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So, this is a really weird scene, right? Boaz has a really hard day at work, right? He works hard. He's a good man. He has dinner with some friends, has a couple drinks to relax, sends his friends away, and he lies down to sleep on, on a heap of grain with a blanket, right? I bet that was just something he liked to do, right? Maybe that wasn't his actual bed. Maybe that was his bed every night, but he's on a heap of grain, kind of just like at the end of a nice day, kicking back. He wakes up because his feet are chilly, and then he just sees this random woman awkwardly sitting right there, right? Just looking at him. Now, I get that Naomi's like, oh, period of mourning's over. Go pursue him. But why something so aggressive like that, right? Couldn't, the, like, in, during the day, Ruth just, like, gone up to him and be like, hey, you're my, you're my kinsman redeemer. I know you don't owe me anything, but, you know, this, right? Like, so it's like, it, it's like, to me, I'm like, why does Naomi prescribe such a progress, uh, uh, aggressive way to get Boaz's attention? Why? Not to mention, it was really risky for her to go into Boaz's quarters in the middle of the night, right? You know how risque that looks, right? especially for someone of good reputation like Boaz, and for someone who has a good reputation like Ruth, imagine how awkward and how risky that is for her to go in there. If he wakes up and he's like, what the heck are you doing here? Get out of here and never come back, right? That could have been, that could have been Boaz's reaction. And I don't know about you, but if a random woman like comes into my room and just like, un- like takes my blankets off and just sits there and looks at me, I'm going to 
I, I'm like, get out of here. I'm calling the police, right? Like, like get out of my house, right? That would be me, right? I wouldn't want to see that woman again, right? And so, so, Naomi, so Ruth and Naomi are both taking a huge risk with something as aggressive as this. And the answer, the answer, guys, to why so aggressive, why be there at the foot of his bed, is because of verse 9. Is because of verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered him, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. We learned about what a kinsman redeemer is. She knows that he is the only one that can restore her after she has been beating up, beaten up by the world. He knows. She knows that he, he's, he's her only hope. And, and, and she, and, and earlier in chapter 12, uh, in chapter 2, verse 12, um, Boaz actually said this to Ruth. Boaz said this to Ruth in chapter 2. He said, The Lord repay you for what you have done for your mother-in-law, and a full reward will be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz himself went up to Ruth, right, and said, listen, I know what you're doing for your mother-in-law. You didn't have to stay with her, but you did. You came all this way. Now you're working so she has food. And he says this. He says, I'm just praying that a full reward be given to you. Boaz prays this over Ruth. He says, I pray that a full reward would be given to you and, 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 and by God in whose wings you're seeking refuge, right? He says, do you know what? You're seeking refuge in the wings of God, and I just pray that he would honor that and that he would give you a reward for that. And Ruth is here saying, you are the answer to your own prayer. Boaz, you prayed for me that I would be protected under the wings of the Lord. I pray that you would be it. I pray that God would use you as the redeemer. So I am here sitting at your feet. This is an important lesson for us, right? Just a quick side note. An important lesson for us is that often we pray for people not realizing that we are the answer to our own prayer for them. That we are the answer to their prayers. So, so, so people might, hey, can you pray for me? I'm really struggling with this. And instead of like, uh, I'm just, like, I just feel alone and like, I have no one to comfort me. Will you pray for me? And like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll pray that the Lord will comfort you. And I pray the Lord will give you fellowship but like you don't even like get to know them, right? You might be the answer to the prayer. You might not be, but you might be, right? Oh, I just, I, I just don't feel like, um, I, I just, I, I don't feel like I'm growing in my faith, right? I, can you just pray for me? Well, yeah, yeah, like you pray for them, but do you know what? You might be the answer to their prayers. Maybe you need to start a quad with them, right? Maybe you need to start a Bible study with them. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that, that that is, but it's an important lesson for us that we might actually be the answer to the prayers that we pray for other people, right? And we have to have enough sensitivity to the Holy Spirit to discern whether we are or not, right? So why take such a risk, right? Once again, like laying at Boaz's feet. We have to remember, guys, that this is a story about Christ, we can't just like, that's really weird, Ruth. That's really awkward. We must remember that, that, that this literature is about the overall story of the gospel. And when I 
look, when I, when I look at this and when I imagine Ruth sitting at the bed of Boaz, not in a sexual way, not in a coming on to him way, that might have been what Naomi intended, but Ruth, it says that she was a woman of good character. She's here, and I just imagine, guys, I imagine her with the same heart as Peter. When the same heart as Peter, as he bows down and he says in John, he says, Lord, where else could I go? You have the words and you alone have the words to eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so Ruth's heart right here, just sitting at Boaz's feet, away from the busyness, right, of his work and his job, just when he's rested, when he's full, right, when he's happy and he's resting, for, for Ruth just to humbly come and sit at the feet of his bed and he wakes up and he's like, who, who are you? He's just like, listen, where else can I go? You are my only hope. If, if, I, don't, if I don't marry soon, I will be sold into slavery I'll be taken by somebody. I'll die of starvation. That's, that's how it, that, unfortunately, that's how it was for women back then. You are my only hope. You are my redeemer. Take me under your wings, for you are my redeemer. Ruth is declaring, place me under your wings of protection. We have, that, that is totally the heart that Peter had when he said, where else can I go, Jesus? Because a bunch of disciples, Jesus had said some really hard truths and a bunch of the disciples, just, they just left, right? They just bounced, right? The 70, like the huge crowd that was with him, they, they just left. And, and he looked at Peter and he said, are you going to go as well, Peter? And Peter just bows down and he says, where else would I go? Where do I have to go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. That is Ruth's heart here. What are you doing here? Where else would I be? But at your feet, asking you humbly, please be my redeemer. You have to know something along with context. And this is why in some of the versions it says, place me under your skirt or place me under your garment, right? Or place me under your reach. Or Many translations say many different things. The edge of someone's garment was often um, explained as the wings. The wings of somebody's garment. That was the, the edges of their skirt, but it was really like their, their, their cloak, right? It was called the wings. And when two people would get married, the man would take off his cloak and he would put his wings on the shoulders of his bride. It was a symbol as his provision, as his redemption, it was, it was a symbol of his love and his protection of his wife, that he would care for her, that he'd protect her, and that he would nourish her. That's, that's what the wings represented. It was to symbolize the, the metaphor of God, Yahweh, being the redeemer, being, having his wings covering them. And so Ruth is saying to Boaz, will you allow me to be your wife? Will you place me under your wings? Right? And we see his reaction in verse 10. Everyone go to verse 10. We're almost done. We're going to end early tonight. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. So this is Boaz's reaction. 
May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And so let's stop there really quick. Boaz is actually impressed by her. Because do you know what? It, uh, it doesn't say anywhere, at least I haven't read, that Boaz was like handsome and like a dashing dude, right? He was probably a little older, right? He probably wasn't really interested in marrying anyone at this point, actually. He probably has a good life where he is, right? right? He's rich. He's got good servants. He's got all of these things, right? He, he's happy, right? So, so he's just saying, I'm impressed by you. There's all these young men. Some of them are rich. Some of them are poor, but you've chosen me, right? Ruth was, a, was an elegant, pretty woman, she saw Boaz as a redeemer. She could have settled for way less. And so he says that. He says that you have not gone after young men. You haven't. And, and do you know what? This probably also means that there's probably a lot of men who would have paid. Who would have paid some money to have a night with you. And you could have made more money than I could have ever given you just picking barley from my fields. I'm impressed by you that you come here and you humbly sit at the feet of my bed rather than selling yourself to whoever would offer you anything. Guys, this is an amazing metaphor for the gospel. That so many of us, we're we're so willing to just sell ourselves so short, right? We sell ourselves so short to whatever might offer us any sort of pleasure, any sort of provision, any sort of security. And we'll settle for all of these little temporary, uh, little like, nights with young men, so to speak, as it would be with Ruth, right? Well, I, I sleep with him. I get a little bit of money just to make sure that Naomi and I can do this. And she didn't do that. She didn't sell herself to young men. She didn't sell herself. Rather, she sat at the feet of her redeemer, not touching him, not waking him, not yelling at him, not, uh, not being super strong towards him, not intimidating him, but just sitting there at the feet of his bed and gently waking, uh, waiting for him to wake up. It says in verse 11, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So Ruth had built a reputation for herself. She wasn't scandalous. She wasn't selling herself. She wasn't rude. She wasn't gossiping. He says, I'm going to do this for you because you're a woman of character. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So what he's saying right now, he's saying is, hey, listen, since I'm all about your good, there's someone closer to you, right? There's someone closer to Naomi. There's someone closer to you. Let me see if he will redeem you, right? So Boaz isn't being selfish either. He's not saying, well, because he expressed like, hey, I'm I'm interested in you too. I've noticed your character. You're obviously beautiful. But listen, if there's someone better for you, let me check, right? And he does that selflessly. If there's a nearer redeemer than I, remain tonight and in the morning he will redeem you. Good. Let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and then she came to her mother-in-law. She said, 
How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And so Naomi's really excited. So Boaz, not only does he say yes, but he says, Listen, while I get everything handled as a symbol of good graces to you, take these six like bushels of barley, right? That's a lot, right? He, he just says, take six measures of barley and just bring it home to nail. And you guys have a, you make some bread, have a feast, just have a good time, right? Boaz basically said, yes, yes, I will. And not only did he say yes, but he gave her extra barley to not only take care of Ruth, who's the one he promised to, but take care of Naomi, who he didn't have to redeem. This is, a, this is also what Christ does for us, guys. That when he, he doesn't just redeem us. He doesn't just make us neutral. All right, I guess I'll let you hang out for a while. He says, no, not only will I bless you, not only will I redeem you, but I will give you far more than you ever asked for. I will exceed everything that you asked for. Here is some extra, not only for you, but for the people close to you. You see the story of Christ's redemptive work here. Ruth was a widow left to fend for herself. And when she comes face to face with the one who can redeem her, she falls at his feet. She falls at his feet and, and, and asks humbly, can I be married to you? In Isaiah chapter 54, and I'll close here. In Isaiah chapter 54, says this for your maker is your husband the Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer for God of the whole earth is he is called for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit like a wife of youth when she is cast off says your God so God is making this exact connection later on in Isaiah hundreds thousands of years after this happens with Ruth God God is so clearly here when he says listen for your maker is your husband he is your redeemer And he will take his people like a bride who has been cast off. As Ruth was a bride who was cast off. Who was a foreigner in a foreign land. Had nowhere to go. And as the Redeemer Jesus. So Boaz comes and shows kindness. And gives an extra measure of grace and love. I mean look at this story and and tell me the Bible isn't about Jesus. Tell me that there isn't some greater narrative taking place here. Because our, our, our Redeemer, Jesus, makes the same exact offer as Boaz does. And I, I, I think, honestly, one of the things that keeps us, that keeps us from, from truly being redeemed and feeling the weight of the sacrifice that Christ has made and what he invites us into is that we, unlike Ruth, are unwilling to sit quietly at the feet of Jesus. We are unwilling to bow humbly at the feet of our Redeemer. 
There's a level of humility it takes for Ruth. There's a level of coming to the end of herself that it takes to come up to him and just sit at his feet and beg. Jesus would later on go to say, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the poor in spirit. If we have not, as the desolate bride in Isaiah chapter 54, if we have not first come to the end of ourselves in desolation, if we have not first realized how depraved and poor we are, how are we supposed to humbly approach the feet of the cross and say, please redeem me? How else are we supposed to ignite that fire of relationship between us and our Lord if we are too proud to bow our knees? if we are too proud to admit that we are at the end of ourselves. Jesus does not, and he said this perfectly in in the book of Luke, he says, it is not the healthy that need a physician, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so, here, And you guys have probably heard this metaphor already a thousand times. But for those of you that haven't, we love, we love, love telling the story of communion. We talk about marriage and we talk about how how God is our husband. He's taking in, and it doesn't even say he takes in an amazing bride. Like I'm, I'm scoring with an amazing bride. Some of you have scored with just such an amazing bride. But what it says in the book of Hosea, what it alludes to is not, he is, he is taking a harlotress and betrayed bride. He's taking someone, he, he has taken on a bride. Like we get the better deal of this marriage. You know what I mean? And the beautiful story of communion, guys, the beautiful story of communion is that in, in, in marriage tradition back in Jesus' time, what would happen is uh, if, if a man was interested in a woman, he would come up to his uh, father, his father first, and he'd say, Father, I, I want this woman to be my wife. Do I have your permission to pursue her? And then the father would say, go for it, or don't go for it, right? But he needed the father's blessing, all right? And so, and, and so he would go, for, then he would go to his father and he'd say, listen, what will it take for me to get the opportunity? So it wasn't like he, he bought the wife. He said, I want to, what, what will it take for me to buy an opportunity to ask your daughter to marry me? So ultimately it was the woman's decision whether she said yes or no, but the man had to buy an opportunity to ask for her, uh, for her hand in marriage, Right? He had to buy that opportunity. He had to pay whatever price it took to get the opportunity to say, will you marry me? And if he had uh, paid that price, whether it was a couple camels or whether it was like, you know, a certain amount of silver or whether he had to build a house for him or whatever it might be, when he finally got the opportunity, right, to, to buy that opportunity, he would gather the entire family around and, and the woman and her family and the men and their family, they'd have a huge feast and there was a cup the cup of the covenant, and, and he would slide the cup over and he would say, this is my covenant, take and drink of it. And if the woman would take the cup and drink, she was essentially saying, I do. And so Jesus, the night before he died, is at the Passover feast with his disciples and he, he says this, he says, listen, here's my cup, take and drink of it. 
he, he took communion. He says, this is my body that's broken for you. I'm, I'm going to be broken for you. That is me buying the opportunity to ask you to marry me. That is me buying the opportunity to ask for your hand in marriage. Now, don't get creepy, guys. It's not like a, you know, a weird thing like that. It's, it, it's, it's a metaphor for the wings, right? I, I want to put my wings over you. I want to protect you. I want to care for you. I want to love you. I want a relationship with you. And so on that cross, when he took on your entire sin, when he, when he was crucified, all of the bad things you have ever done, all the sin that had separated you from God, it was put on that cross and he had bought the opportunity to ask you to marry him. And then he slid over the cup to his disciples and he said, this is my covenant, take and drink of it. This is my blood that is spilt for you. And if you partake in my blood, meaning if you accept what I've done for you and you drink then you are saying, I do. And so this is the question that Christ asks you and I. Where he, like Boaz, has the opportunity to redeem you. Now some of us are too proud to take of that cup because we think we've got it all together, we think we're fine, we think we've got everything figured out. But for those that are broken enough, those who know that they don't have a handle on life enough, those who know that they're separated from God, they're the ones that will fall at the feet of the cross and say, you have have redeemed me? I I do. And that's why we take communion every night, guys, every Sunday night, because it's just to remind us during worship of who we're actually worshiping. We are worshiping a king that was beaten for us on our behalf. And that dealt with sin and, 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 and just broke down and, and, and punished any, any kind of barrier that kept you between uh, him, and God, uh, him and you, right? And so when we take communion, we remember the sacrifice that, that he made for us. And then we, we take the cup and what we say to Jesus is like, I, I, I know that you are my redeemer. I want to humbly sit at your feet and just ask, will you be my redeemer, Right? And so whatever baggage you're carrying in here tonight, whatever thing you feel like you need redemption from, I I, I want you to know that your Redeemer is living. He's no longer on the cross. You see, you know, a lot of people have crucifixes, but, but we have an empty cross for a reason. There is no Jesus on that cross. It is empty. The grave is empty. He has risen again so that he doesn't just get to buy you back. He gets to walk through life with you. That's amazing. And so we're going to pray. And, and, and you know, I just want this to be a sweet time for you tonight. I want you to stick around. Don't leave. You know, I, I've ended early so you won't leave, right? Hey, take this time to take communion, to worship, to sing, and to just sit at the feet as Ruth did of your Redeemer. Amen? Lord, we love you. I pray that tonight would be a night um, that we really just experience the redemption you want to do in our lives, God, that we would continually say, I do to you. Lord, w- one thing about marriage and love and relationships is that it's, it's not a one-time thing you say yes, you have to, you continually say yes to. And, and Father, I just pray that tonight would be another night where we just say, yes, Lord, I want you. I want you to redeem me. And that that tonight we would just feel comforted under the wings of our Redeemer. 
as Ruth felt comforted at the feet of the bed, uh, at the foot of the bed of Boaz, that we would feel comfortable at the feet of your cross, Jesus. We'd be able to sit there and just experience the full weight of grace that you would have for us. We love you, Lord. We pray that this would be a sweet time of worship tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.